Hello and welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast looking at how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. I'm Christina Patterson, I'm a writer, broadcaster and coach, and today I'm really delighted to welcome Margaret Casely Hayford, lawyer, businesswoman and boardroom superstar. Margaret was the first black female partner of a city law firm and then company secretary of John Lewis before taking on a portfolio of boardroom roles. She's currently chair of Shakespeare's Globe, a member of the board of the Co-op Group, chair of the advisory board of Ultra Education and chancellor of Coventry University. She has been in the black power list for the past two years running and was awarded a CBE in 2018. In this podcast, she talks about good governance, the power of diversity and how to get things done. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on, Margaret. Welcome to The Art of Work. Thank Um, you very much. It's a pleasure to be invited and I'm I'm honoured. Well, thank you. So you come from a family of very, very, very high achievers. What was the model of success in your family and did you feel pressure to match it? The family is, um, goodness me, um, generations of um, uh, people who felt uh, somehow compelled to work hard and to um, participate in both civic life and working life to the to the max. And um, there there were so many people within the family who've actually succeeded in their own specific um, sphere. But every generation thinks, "Crikey, am I going to be the one who's going to let them down?" Mm. And and so so there there's been a sort of silent pressure, if you like. But um, I, I think just really, if you grow up in a certain background, you just basically absorb the, the ethos and the ethic. Um, and and I remember hearing um, my brother's son. Um, talking to my daughter and saying they're such a hard act to follow and it's funny because I felt that about my father's generation I'm sure he felt that about his father and so on so it just sort of goes down the line but um the model of success I suppose it's just really to put your all in and do as much do the best you can and I I I know that when Joe my brother who um was a fashion designer said he wanted to be a fashion designer my father didn't say well I think that's ridiculous he just said well um just do it to the best level you possibly can and um sent him to pattern cutting school first mm. because you know if you can deconstruct then you know you can construct well and and sit so, and and in fact joe said that was the making of him because he really understood garments really well having um sort of almost done an apprenticeship in pattern cutting so i think it's it's that ethic of doing everything to the best of your ability mm. And did you grow up with strong, a strong aesthetic sense as a family? We, um, oh gosh, that's such a, that's a really good question. Um, I think part of the aesthetic um, sense came from my mother, who um, she, we none of us knew. It was really quite sad, actually. She, she, she always did things like, um, you know, she cooked well she she arranged flowers beautifully she had a fabulous garden but she hankered after being a um, a sculptor Mm. and it was only when she retired that she took up pottery and sculpting and so on and this incredible talent came out and I just thought that's so sad because she sort of devoted her life to being a a working uh, mother and juggling looking after all of us and 
and, and, and working as well. And it was only literally that she found herself when she retired. But we we had um, her import into our lives and we, and she and she she bought all the glossy magazines and and lovely books and things. So, so we would all discuss what was in the current Harper's and Queen as it was in those days, or what was in House and Garden and Homes and Garden and so on. And 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 so there were lots of there was lots of visual stimulation. And then there was a sort of competitiveness in the way you know, we'd say, well, have you seen this? Have you done that? And, and she taught us to paint. Um, from when we were very, very young, we, you know, we all had a little watercolour set, those lovely little watercolour sets. And, um, and I, when it, with hindsight, I don't know how she did it because she was always there for us and um, trying to bring out the best and make, make us have um, hobbies that brought out our talents and so on. And yet she worked full time. And I know now that I couldn't possibly do what she did. And I just don't know how she did it. I mean, I, I only had one child and I just find that I'm always in the wrong place at the wrong time. And she she had four. <laughs> she was astonishing at just juggling it all. I mean, she was incredibly bad-tempered at times, but I just think that we all deserve <laughs> it, no doubt. <laughs> and what did, what did she do? Because your father was an accountant who became a barrister. What did your mother do? Um, my my mother worked for the British Council, um, oh, and she was an event manager um, and an and event organizer for sort of um, visiting dignitaries and and academics and so on. Um, yes, yeah, she, she loved the British Council, um, and I think that it, the, 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 her real sadness was, like most organizations in this country, it was quite narrow sighted in terms of giving her opportunity mm. um, and she was never able to progress through it in the way she deserved to. When you you emailed me many years ago when I was at The Independent I'd, I'd seen a play um, a, a very very powerful play and I, I haven't read the column actually so I don't know what I wrote but I know that <laughs> I know the headline was something like so where's our black middle class oh I do now remember the play actually it was about um, I can't remember where it was set, it, it was, but it was um, about an area of um, a city, it wasn't Chicago, but somewhere that had a very, that had been very uh, white and then had a very gentrified black middle class moving in. And, um, and you emailed me and I can't remember what you said, but what I didn't realise when you emailed me is that you are very clearly upper middle class. <laughs> in fact, if anything, sort of more like arist- I know not exactly aristocracy, but certainly in the, in term, you know black aristocracy in in this country. In fact, probably in, in I don't know I don't know what your relationship with Ghana is now, but you you come from a very very uh, Ill- originally a very very sort of illustrious Ghanaian family, and and yet you sound so English, and your aesthetic from your Instagram and so on is very very English, and I'm just wondering about that mix of sort of Englishness and upper upper class Englishness, and where the African comes in, if at all. It, we, we very much are African, um, but, but um, uh, my brothers and I were born and brought up here. Um, first of all, I just want to I want to thank you in person, and I've I wanted to do this for a long time because your um, your I suppose I suppose perspicaciousness, if there's such a word, your your enlightened view was something that I hadn't seen before. Because um, the question that you raised in your headline meant that you could see us. You could see that people are diverse. Um, 
in within their own color and that's that's almost the reason why um the phrase white privilege causes such distress because what people are doing who don't see us is lumping us all together and saying you know because they're black they're, they're all or deprived and then when um someone tries to explain the benefits that come from being a white person there are there'll be others who look at someone like me and think well for heaven's sake what what are you talking about what is white privilege when you have your lifestyle and there are people who are live, literally living in poverty who, who are mm. white and it doesn't make any sense to them mm. and so the fact that you can see us actually helps um, us to um, to be able to enter into a more meaningful dialogue about fairness for everybody, because I can talk about fairness and talk about working class people, meaning white working class and black working class, mm. to, to someone like you, because you are enlightened enough to be able to see us. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart mm. <laughs> for your perspicacity. See, may, may I just say, Margaret? <laughs> honestly, I feel like I feel like crying now. I don't I certainly don't deserve. Uh, any great thanks on this I think what is desperately upsetting is that you should have to say any of the things you've just said but I, I think that one of the things that complicates the class issue so much is that the the leap for so many the you know they drop to class or two in in coming here because you know people who had had professional roles in their home country came here uh, and suddenly were working in very menial roles because they were the only roles they could get and so suddenly became working class and therefore a perception is that um you know all the caribbeans in london for example were working class which is clearly absolutely ridiculous with with africans i would have thought it was well again much more complicated but um but anyway that's, you're, that's, sorry it's so true no it's I, I i it's it's such an important point this because we're actually missing talent um the numbers of people who are working as security guards who um have qualifications that are way above the the the, the, mm. the, the position they hold the numbers of people who are working as minicab drivers as i, I mentioned my mother my mother's father had a, um, a fine art collection. He, in fact, she wanted to work in the fine art department of the British Council, and she wasn't allowed to. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it, and I'm sure it's because they, they thought that she wouldn't have understood the essence of British art. And it, this goes back to your question because um, if you go back to Africans in Edwardian England and Af and Africans in Victorian England, you'll see that that sort of upper middle class level. There were, there were huge numbers of Africans uh, moving backwards and forwards between Africa and mm. um, and, and, and Europe. Um, so whether it's Holland, France, um, England, you will see that uh, uh, see that we that we were there. And in fact, um, my aunt Gladys was the goddaughter of Samuel Coleridge Taylor, who the 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 um, the, the, the composer oh, really? who 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 was, who was actually. Um, seen by Elgar to be the most talented um, uh, composer of his generation. And Elgar actually mentored him because he thought he was so wonderful. Um, I think it was Elgar and Bridge who were both you know, absolute champions of his. Um, there's a lovely um, biography of um, my grandfather's wife, Adelaide Smith, Casey Hayford, which talks about um, 
the life that they had um, here and in Jersey. She was brought up in Jersey. Um, she was the first, one of the first, I think, three pupils in the Jersey College for Girls. And the reason she was is because my, um, her, her father basically founded the school wow. um, 140 years ago. And the incredible thing is that that was the point at which girls' education wasn't even a thing. Wow. It, so it, it's so amazing. So they, they were champions of education, champions of girls' education, recognizing the importance of it. We had doctors, we had lawyers, we had clergy and politicians, um, and journalists and writers in the family um, for years. And if you, I mean, if you read the biography of Adelaide Smith, Katie Hayford, you can see how they all came and went. Um, my father's family, um, basically, um, again, they, I mean, for probably three hundred years, has had quali qualified individuals um, at all levels. And um, uh, my um, cousin Louis was the uh, CEO of the Bolter River Company, which basically um, electrified um, the whole of the Bolter region. Um, my my uncle Archie was um, a member of Nkrumah's government, um, and um, my grandfather J. E. Casey Hayford was a writer and Pan Africanist, and um, basically he was um, a, a political activist uh, as 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 well as, well as a, a lawyer. He set up chambers in. Accra. In fact, I need to just correct um, something that you said earlier. Yes, sorry. My my father had qualified as a a lawyer, but he he, he well he read law, but he never practiced law. He didn't oh. like it. He didn't enjoy oh. it. He became an accountant, which is why we were born and brought up here, because oh. he felt he'd let the family down by not going into the law, like his brother and his father, and so he didn't go back into the family chambers at Cape Coast. Um. And so that's that's why we were the generation that was born and brought up here rather than in Ghana. And he always felt terribly guilty because um, we come from the Fanti royal family. So it was a really big thing for him not to go back. Wow. Um, so, so you are literally aristocracy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I, I, I do remember on one occasion um, a client... And I, and I still don't know how he did his research. He was because he was a he was a funny he was a really interesting character, um, and um, he ca came to see me on one occasion at, at Denton's when I was there, uh, working there, and he said, "I've just found out that you are a Fanti princess. Do I have to curtsy?" <laughs> <laughs> um, at what point? How, what, at what point did you decide to do law? Well, it was sort of in the back of my mind for a very, very long time because, it, it, as, as I say, it was in the family. And mm. my mother wanted me to be a lawyer because um, very few women were and she was quite a feminist. Mm. Um, but I wanted to be a ballet dancer. So, I, I you know, mm. that was that was my big love, dance. And, and um uh, and my mother was very, she was very worried about this and said, you know, it's a short lived career and so on and so forth, all the sensible things that parents say. And she, so, and so to try to do ballet, I, I would have to basically sort it out for myself. She wasn't getting help with that. And when I was young, I'd had quite bad eczema. 
so I kind of think you know sort of body consciousness so it wasn't until I was much older that I started to 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 to, to learn dance and and then I thought actually this is bonkers because it, it would be a short-lived career and um and then and then there was the wonderful moment when a woman on the train saw me reading something and started to talk with me and talk to ask me questions about my career and I said exactly the same as I said to you and she said but you keep blaming your parents but of course it's not their fault and I said well what do you mean and I was really annoyed and I well, who is this woman she doesn't know me she said because if you really wanted to you would just do it and that was almost the light bulb moment and I thought mm. yes that's it it that there's something in my in my mind that's stopping me and that was the point at which I thought okay that's it so then uh, yes, I went off to university and read law, and um, the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> mm. And what, um, there can't have been very many black undergraduates at Somerville when you were there, or indeed at Oxford, Oxford broadly. What, what was that like? Um, when I was at Somerville, there was, there was one other person of colour in, um, in my year, I remember, um, who was reading medicine. And there were two brothers at Christchurch. Um, the Matavu brothers and the ridiculous thing is there were so few of us that you could count how many there were at the different colleges um but and we were all from relatively privileged backgrounds um and so we had a a comfortable time because I think that at that stage um in 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 the 80s end of the 70s end of the 80s um Oxford is classist rather than racist. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so for, for us, it wasn't all that difficult because we had basically had the same sort of background as the people that we were with. Um, but what has changed so much is that they've widened access with programmes like Target Oxbridge. And, and so they are trying to move to make sure that people not, not only um, come in larger numbers from different backgrounds, but also stay and enjoy it. Um, having gone to a girls' public day school trust school, um, and you know, and come from the sort of background I did, I did, I wasn't intimidated. It, it's interesting. It's been a relatively recent word: this intersectionality. I'm still not terribly comfortable. Well, not comfortable. That's not the right word. But but um, these words don't trip off the tongue for me. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but you know, language has changed. But. Um, Yours is, is, which is, you know, about the sort of gender, class, race, etc. Um, obviously, at the time that you went into law, as we know from the anecdote you just told, there was discrimination against women. And in terms of numbers of women who reached partner that, you know, one could argue there still is, and you could talk about what that discrimination consists of, whether it's active discrimination or whatever. And it will, obviously we'll talk about this in relation to the board issue as well. But you were and are a woman, a woman of colour, but an upper class woman of colour. How would you say that that intersection uh, played out for you in your early career? Um, hmm. it, it... In my in my early career, I think basically I was much more a champion of feminism. So I I you know for example I had the um, prefix Ms. and I do remember somebody saying to me, "I've got you taped by virtue of the fact that you call yourself Ms. Mm. Uh, which was really interesting. And um, uh, um, 
oh gosh, I do remember I did get a job on one occasion when I was very young and looking for a, a summer job um, from someone who um, had seen my, he'd seen my double barrel surname and he'd heard me speak on the telephone and he said to me, no, then he, then he called me in for interview. And I remember sitting <laughs> in the, in uh, um, waiting to, to go in and he kept wandering in and out. And then he said to his PA, um, when Miss Casely Hayford arrives, do send, send arrives, do send her in. I mean, she's she's. She, she, I'm surprised she's not here yet. And his PA said she's here. She's been waiting for quite some time. And he looked really surprised and realised that it was me. And when I went in to to, to to the interview, he said to me, "Well, you're here on false presenters, aren't you?" <gasps> and, and I I was astonished, and I just I didn't know what to say to him because essentially it was. Only because he was an idiot and hadn't realised mm. <laughs> um, that I could be anything other than, than than what he'd imagined in his mind, and and um, so so in a way that that played it to my my in my, my favour because I think he then felt he had to give me the job and thought like the because I needed the money. But, so, um, but but I think that um, it's been much more um i think difficult because of being a woman than 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 being black mm. originally um because the law is is just so weird and so conservative but there were people ahead of me and i you know when i went to dentons there was an amazing woman i worked to who was the head of the department um and i know that she had a hard time being a woman and and and, and um she worked all hours of the day and night um, and I sort of grew up in her image. I mean, she was absolutely my my hero, although I was terrified of her. <laughs> um, and um, and then there was another woman who had a better work life balance. Um, but um, I would listen to the men talking about the way she worked to accommodate her children, and they'd say things like, um, "Oh, you've got a meeting with so and so if you can find her," um, because of course she was very strict about leaving the office at certain times and making sure she was there for her children but mm. she was the most efficient worker I've ever come across she was extraordinary um and and she achieved as much as the men easily and still juggled everything really well so um that it was seeing how difficult it was for women that gave me my sort of um determination um but I think that later on in life the mix has been something that's been quite strange because people who've sought diversity for their organization are sometimes lazy and 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 don't really look at the width of, 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 of um and, and and so they'll make a decision based on my color and then i have to say to them but that doesn't mean that you've actually widened access very much because i'm i've probably got the same background as all the people sitting around your table yeah yeah um and in fact I, I've sat at boards with um, Victor Adebowale, and he is the most extraordinary thinker. And if you want a really diverse board, you want to go to somebody like Victor, who really brings a different dimension. Whereas I'm sure that I just bring the same dimension as everybody. I, 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 I rather doubt that, Margaret. Apart from anything else, it'll be a lot posher than most people. <laughs> but, uh, but I wondered, I, I had the sense that. I mean, gosh, your family. I mean, I feel like going off and reading loads of books about them now. But um, 
the ethos that drove them is extraordinary, really. And But I had the sense that it was one of sort of optimism, essentially, that we don't, I mean, you know, always kind of looking forward, breaking barriers. Is that what you feel you grew up with? And is that uh, an ethos you have imbibed? Absolutely, yes, definitely. Because if you always dwell on the negative, you won't get out of bed. Um, and if you if you've got a certain degree of comfort, if you've got a certain degree of um, knowledge, you should do your best to um, prepare the ground for those that come after you. Um, you should do your best to reach out to others and give them as much support as, as you possibly can. And you have to focus on the positive in, in order to do that. You have to be aware of the negative, and we are very, very aware of the negative, and we don't, we, we, you know, we, we're not um, it's, it's so disillusioned as to think um, you know, in the same way that some people say, um, I think it was it was I think it was Bernie Eccleston who who somebody made a really disparaging remark about how glamorous and gorgeous his wife was, and 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 he always had and he always had glamorous girlfriends before he married, and um, he said to he 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 just sort of put them back in their box by saying, well, um, it's amazing how tall I am when I stand on my wallet. Mm. And and I and I just thought that was so cool because essentially there is that element, the sort of O.J. Simpson element, where you suddenly people can't see your colour because you've got a certain amount of privilege around you, and and you mustn't take advantage of that to just rest on your laurels. You've got to say to yourself, there are people who really can't benefit from what I've benefited from so let me see what I can do um, well I'm, I'm really fascinated by that uh, um, philosophy of um, be aware of the negative but focus on the on the positive because I do think I have no patience for the kind of facile optimism that that suggests everything is okay and you think well that's because you're not aware of the realities isn't it and you know, my own philosophy I suppose I would describe as energetic realism which is not very different actually um you know rather than kind of uh you know sort of wallowing in pessimism or just or just declaring everything will be all right which of course it won't unless people take action precisely I couldn't agree more and I, I think that bitterness is unconstructive as it only destroys the individual who's better and and and, and then on the other hand not 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 bothering to, 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 to focus and really get things done um, just means that you perpetuate the, 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 the lunacy of the situation. And mm. Currently, I mean, we couldn't be in a politically more difficult situation. Well, I suppose we could, but um, uh, you know, just seeing all over the world signs of democracy disappearing mm. is really, really d- depressing. But, you know, let, let's see what we can do. I mean, and because governance is really something that is so dear to me good governance that's I feel that's almost my gift it's be, it's been something that all my forebears have, have lent into mm. and so I've just taken that on and I um, do what I can with it before I keep over <laughs> well it's very very interesting you say that I mean I 
I was my father was a, a civil servant and was a kind of living embodiment of the Nolan principles, really, to, to the extent that when when my, my he was in the diplomatic service for 10 years and my mother was the only diplomatic wife who had absolutely no idea what what my father was doing because he was so kind of honourable about not not breathing a word. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a spy or anything. He just took confidentiality very seriously. But um, obviously we are arguably living through times where standards in public life are uh you know kind of if nothing at the very least a controversial issue i realize you won't be able to comment politically and i'm i won't ask you to comment politically but i noticed that on your website there were photos of you with people like R- rishi sunak and oliver dowden um at the globe of which you are currently chair what is your I, i'm sure that privately you have strong views about all kinds of things which i imagine you're far too diplomatic to to voice how do you what's your best advice for dealing with politicians because you know we all we all have to well we don't all have to deal with politicians but to get things done you have to deal with the power mechanisms and the power structures and that involves politicians absolutely i think it's really really important to um understand the structure so that you really understand um how how it works and and then to think about the fact that Every politician is about speedy delivery because what they want is to um, essentially demonstrate that they can um, can deliver what they've promised. So to the extent that your ambition for your own enterprise um, helps them realise where they're going, um, that's probably quite a good story to tell, um, to tell them. It's, I think you have to be, you have to understand um, the the context and be able to deliver it shortly and quickly um and because even if they're settled in their belief they won't know your industry as well as you do so you've got to be able to explain how their how your industry impacts on their decisions on their policy or on their ambitions tell the story clearly and well Mm. and quickly um and and um essentially they don't want to know bad news as well i mean it's that it's the old story of people in 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 high positions really don't want to know bad news because there's so many people already telling them that yes every day um so unless you have potential solutions yeah um, and, and i do try to be very very solutions oriented um then you know there's no point highlighting that something doesn't work or is is going to collapse um because yeah there are loads of those people queuing up to tell them that so that, that, yes that's 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 the, really probably the reason why um i do have a decent relationship with politicians of any hue and i remember when i was in planning and development that i really honed that and i had to because planning is all about the relationship um between the individual and the administration and so i had to work with local government and central government and that's where i, I essentially basically learned to tell the story mm. in the right way very interesting. So tell me, what did you like, or what do you like most? I know you're not a lawyer now, but I mean, you're always a lawyer, but you're not, you obviously have a portfolio life now and not a practicing lawyer. What did you like most about the, the law? The element of um, the relationship between the administration and the individual um, mm. that I mentioned, um, and really understanding how this, you can get the structure to work for people. Because be, being a planning lawyer is, is literally um, about understanding 
how best to change the environment um, to suit um, and and to get you know, profitability from changing it. Um, and and we worked on such major schemes that you know, we were telling our uh, um, or, or on behalf of our our, our clients, were telling the local authority where the um, homes, hospitals, workspaces, transport infrastructure, or whatever. Um, and, and in particular, shopping retailers did not work for retailers would go, um, and and how they would impact on on people's lives. And so I love that. I just love that. And in fact, um, on my timeline on on Instagram, somebody posted um, uh, a picture of um, the uh, St Pancras Hotel, and I can remember negotiating at that stage. I was working for the local authority. Um, um, Although I was in private practice, I was negotiating on behalf of local authority and telling the developer the elements that they needed to preserve um, because it was such an important building, mm. but it was completely derelict at the time. Wow! And it was wonderful because the the the, I, <laughs> the developer kept saying, "Well, I don't think that's feasible," and and it was great because I, judge being a conservation architect, I could go home and say to him, "I'm asking for X, Y, and Z, and I believe it's feasible. Do you think it is?" And he'd quickly say, "Yes, yes, that's that's feasible." So I could then go back into negotiating hard and saying, yes, that's perfectly feasible. And then now seeing how glorious this oh, it's wonderful. I love it. It's one of my favourite places to go for a drink, actually. But you, you were made a partner at Denton's and were, in fact, the first black female partner in a, in a city law firm. That seems so shocking now. What did that feel like? Did you think, I am the first black female partner? Or did you just think, oh, great, I got made, I, I made partner? I was thrilled at making partner. I was utterly terrified almost every day that this will be the day when I do something that will make them think, oh my goodness me, we, we can't have another black person. Mm. This is what happens. And that's, that's, that's the burden that you carry as you know, the first of anything mm. that you as a woman, the first black person. Um, so I just constantly felt under pressure, under scrutiny, um, and I probably worked unhealthily hard and to the point where um, I had a little fridge in the office because I would work till all hours of, you know, and needed to have something to eat. And mm. it was crazy, really. And um, I wouldn't advocate that sort of lifestyle mm. for anybody. But it was it was it was fear. Um, and I wouldn't say it was fear because it was Denton's. It was fear just because of who I was in the situation that I was in. Um, and uh, uh, I just hope that things have changed to such a degree that nobody ever feels that level of individual pressure again. But I'm sure they do, sadly, because you know I, I know that there are still not very many people of colour at positions of part, you know, part that partnership position even now um, mm. it's 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 changing but it's changing surprisingly slowly in an interview in the times i think about a decade ago you said one of the pieces of career advice you gave was don't let your guard down um, and yet now the kind of fashionable thing in business circles is to talk about authenticity and bring your, your whole self to work and so on. What, what do you think of that? And how, how would you kind of square, can you square those two different things? I think um, that something really interesting has happened with young people now. 
and that is that they want values-driven organizations and they won't um, accept what my generation accepted and that's a good thing so it does mean that um, they're more likely to be able to take their whole selves to work because more of them are doing that and so if you do go into work with an afro for example you're not an outlier mm-hmm. um, and people won't immediately um, you know sort of call security um, and it's something <laughs> it's something I could never have done and I, and I you know that I, I know that that sounds really trite and incredibly trivial because I've gone to something that's about the, the physical me rather than the the essence of you know, the substantive individual but in a way it so epitomizes everything yes. because my afro is my natural hair yes and i have never ever ever gone to work with my natural hair wow. in fact i can't i can't now because uh it, it basically i've had my hair straightened for so long that it would be quite difficult to grow it out it's rather like growing out bleached hair you know once you're there you're there um so um that's and that's just because i didn't think it would be seem to be acceptable um, and so I think, and, and if you are worrying all the time about what people think about you, there's a bit of you that is wasting brain power. Do, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. So you, you could, if, if you're, if if you can be your whole self, you can actually do more mm. for the organisation. Um, so the fact that young people now are able to do more. Um, that that's a, that's a that's a really important and and a shift, and we we're gradually getting there. I I do remember. I mean this and I'm not. This is not just necessarily a black and white thing. It's male. It's female. It's it's all of us. Going back to what you were saying about the hours that you did as a partner at Dentons and the the fridge in the office. I, I think you. I, I read that you employed a, a nanny and a PA, so it's like having a wife at home. Um, how did you feel about uh, the whole kind of, how did you manage? I mean, work-life balance is almost impossible when you have that kind of senior role. How did you manage it? <laughs> I, I really don't think I was terribly good at it. I, 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 I just spent just way too much time at the office. And, 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 and it, it was, I mean, your research is impeccable. And, and yes, I had, I had both. And, and it just meant that, um, they coordinated with each other to make sure that um, the, the, you know, the space was in the diary for me to go off to um, see my daughter if she was if she had a ballet performance or whatever it was. So, because they talked to each other um, on my behalf, which mm. is wonderful to make sure the diary worked and, and so on. Um, but even so, I did spend an inordinate amount of time at work. Um, but then also, I, I've been so lucky. In, in having a partner I mean, my husband Giles is, is amazing and between us um, uh, we, 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 sh- we shared everything whoever got home first did the cooking um, he's an architect as you know and a mm. conservation specialist and that was the other thing we, we, we were able to speak the same language because I was in planning yeah. so he understood if I had to go off to a public inquiry two weeks or whatever it was he would understand he completely understood it worked but it it, it wasn't optimal because I I would ideally have liked to have spent more time with my daughter when she was small but with hindsight I would have done and, and I have to say my mother did, did tell me because she did say to me if these days will go so quickly enjoy it 
um, and uh, I didn't realise what she was saying. Really. I didn't really understand it as well. And uh, yet, and yet, at the time when you have, at, in that age group when you are, if you do have a family, those are the very years when you are climbing the ladder or, or building a career. And I don't know how feasible it is in a city job to work less hard. Aren't don't all the partners work extremely hard? Yes, absolutely. And then and, and post Big Bang as well, that, that was the point at which people weren't, you know, they weren't stopping for lunch, they weren't you know, creature comforts just went just just completely went by the board. So you're absolutely right. I think that's right. As as you build your career, um, there's a horrible incompatibility with also having a family and um and that's sort of built into the structure. And in fact, interestingly, um on LinkedIn I see young people talking about burnout and so on and it breaks my heart that that still seems to be the model in an awful lot mm. of um, city firms. So it, it's not changing in the way it ought to. But in a way, the pandemic might have shifted things slightly because at least if you can work from home, you can see your children be around them a bit more. So it it might be that modern technology and the fact that we've all had to work on Zoom and Teams and so on will make life easier um, to explain. <laughs> um, uh, and and, and you know, that hybrid working will be something we cling on to. I sincerely hope so. Anyway. Yes, yes. I, I I think it it could well be. But the counter argument is that if women are the ones at home with the children, then they are the ones who are going to be less visible as, as people um, are kind of being considered for more senior roles. And obviously, it shouldn't all be about physical visibility. But very often, pe- people are quite literal minded, aren't they? So there will be, I suppose, work to be done on that front. There's a huge amount of work to be done, and I, I think that again, this, this is, this is the time at which we can change so much because, um, what, what we need to do is to realise that, that, that visibility can be vis- visibility in, in numbers of different ways. What we need to remember is that training and support and so on should prepare people to work in different ways because otherwise you might be missing out on somebody with a physical disability who can't get into the mm. office on a regular basis or very easily at all, you, and, but has, you know, the brain of Einstein. Um, you, you, know, you might, I mean, it's just, it's, it is, it, it, it's ridiculous to um, grow a team without recognising the possible width of diversity that you could have yes. and, and the impact of the physical environment being the only environment on, on, on the ability of that team to survive. Um, so, um, you know, I think this, this is a time at which we could create change. And for me, pushing boundaries has been one of the most important things that I've, I've done. It's, it's, mm. um, you know, the, even when I went into the law, I just thought, realised that there are some lawyers who just apply the law, and that's okay, it's fine, if that's what you want to do. And then there are others who change the law when it doesn't work for people. And I looked at them and was so in awe and I just thought I have to be that person so in everything I do I just look to see does it work for people and if it doesn't I'll question it and try and change it amazing and I think I think you started taking on board roles about 20 years ago as a trustee of Great Ormond Street Hospital the Jeffrey Museum and the Young Vic and 
and now, of course, you have a, a very, very, very packed portfolio life as chair of Globe, <laughs> then board of co-op, chancellor of Coventry University, chair of Ultra Education, trustee of the Radcliffe, Radcliffe Trust. I, I obviously have no idea how you do it all. When you first took on those board roles 20 years ago, did you think, yes, I will at some point have a full time portfolio life rather than an exec role? I certainly hoped I would have a portfolio life at some point, yes. Um, but that wasn't the reason I, I took, took those roles on. I took those roles on because I wanted to participate in civic life and do something more than, than you know, being a lawyer. And um, I, I had not a clue how to be on a board. And I was so lucky that um, the two chairs saw promise in me and saw that I could bring my um, real estate planning um, background into um, the forward strategy because both um, Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital Charity and the Jeffrey Museum were focusing on developments at the time um, that, so they wanted to be able to navigate the, you know, the, the real estate development um, appro appropriately and so I was able to add value and at the same time learn about how to be strategic and not dive down into the operational weeds all the time and, mm. and, and to learn how to manage risk and so on. So um, I was very much cutting my teeth as a board member, as a trustee, but at the same time I was adding value because I could bring my own special And so I was just incredibly lucky. It was wonderful um, to have those opportunities. And two, I have to say, white males took a chance on me and I hope I didn't let them down. I, I, I suspect it's rather unlikely that you did, given how your <laughs> career has ended up. But um, um, obviously, it looks like, you know, glittering success, your career. Have there been any low points? Yes, gosh. Um, in the 1990s, um, when there was a massive property crash, early 90s, um, I can remember I could see that people were gradually just sort of disappearing at, at, uh, from the business at Denton's at the time, as with all the other law firms, um, people being made redundant. And then there was a day when I, um, I'd gone to a meeting out in Cambridgeshire and I came back and I was feeling quite pleased with myself because I'd achieved whatever it was I'd been sent to achieve or tried to achieve. And I came back and I was asked to go to a, a basement meeting room and uh, there was a complete stranger there. And that's one of the things that I thought was really sad is that, you know, if you're going to make someone redundant, then at least do it yourself. But this mm. person, this consultant was brought in to basically tell me that that was it. <gasps> and as, as I say, in those days, I had my fridge in the office. I worked so hard. <gasps> but I just, it was just like being punched in the stomach. <gasps> and I just thought, my goodness, what am I going to do? So I went upstairs and phoned Giles and said, please, can you come and get me? Um, because I need to go home, but I need to take my fridge with me. And I obviously can't because I haven't got a car. And um, and he was very sweet because he didn't ask any questions because I think I would have oh. burst into the most appalling, sobbing hysteria had he asked any questions. Oh. And he just came and, and helped me take my things. And I took my name off the door and I went home. Oh. And it was extraordinary because I just hadn't thought about what I would do next. And I just thought, well, that's it. I suppose that's the end of the law. And I have to now think about something else. And what am I going to do? And I was sitting in the kitchen 
And it was extraordinary. The phone rang and client after client after client rang and said, where are you? Where are you? During that, that week. And by the end of the week, I realized I had a client following, which I hadn't even thought about because I worked so hard. And I, at that stage, I would take them out to dinner. I would um, take them to the theater and the opera and so on. And so they were friends. And so essentially, I realized I had a practice. And I, in fact, with one of them, I, I, I actually said, I, I don't work for dentists anymore. You're going to have to speak to Mr. So-and-so. And he said, I've told them to put all my papers into boxes and to take them to you. Wow. And I said, but I'm, I'm just in my kitchen without insurance. I can't do your work. And he said, get insurance. It was incredible. It was such an, an amazing moment. So even though it was an incredibly low point, it was also the most amazing high point as well. Because I just rang and um, at that stage, we were one of you know, the top players in planning. And um, I just rang the other firm that was our, our main rival and I just I told them what the situation was and they said oh come here and so within six days I was in another oh. firm <laughs> it was absolutely incredible Gosh. absolutely amazing but then I mean you you probably realize that I became a partner in Denton's because um what happened was um as it, as it, uh, I mean, it, it is just such a, a silly set, set of circumstances that once you've planned your life, because I thought this is where I'll stay now and I'll become a partner here at, at Berwyn Nathan. Um, and, um, and then, of course, uh, after a few months, the phone rang and I'd completely forgotten that Giles and I had um, we'd uh, put our names forward to adopt a child. And, the, and it had taken years and years and years. And then suddenly the adoption. Um, authorities ran and said we've got a little girl for you and because it had taken such a long time yeah the last thing I was going to say was I've just moved into a new firm I'm not going on maternity <sighs> leave <laughs> so I had to go I had to go on maternity leave so I could have time to get to know this really adorable little girl and um uh and of course in those days maternity leave um for adopters was not the thing so I had to you know, take unpaid leave, and but they were, and I just thought, well, I'll tell the clients what I'm doing, but I have to just say to them, I trust the partner that I work to there. Um, he's an absolutely superb lawyer, and if you know when the chips are down, they think he's so brilliant that they don't come come back to me. That's my bad luck, really. I just have to start again, and um, so I was at home and that's when I wrote my planning law book because I mm. I just didn't want to lose um you know sort of I wanted to stay keen and um and then after a, another few months um Denton's rang and apparently a, a very major client was panicking about the fact that there didn't seem to be the planning expertise um and uh they wanted to um they were to repitch the, the real estate work so I, I was asked that I would go back again and so I contacted the partner at, at uh, Berwyn Leighton and said look um, they will offer me a partnership instantly and I wouldn't expect you to do that because you don't know me from a hole in the wall really um, but if I go back I mean I would only go back to them on the understanding that I'm not wooing any clients over with me because 
frankly, you've nurtured them and looked after them and you've been amazing and kind to me. So, you know, if the clients stay with you, they stay with you. Um, so I went to Denton's on that understanding that I wasn't bringing a client following with me. And uh, it was amazing because the clients came with me um, in spite of everything. I thought they'd just think I was a lunatic and just, you know, stay with Bob and Nathan, but they came with me and I was able to re, you know, restart my career and at Denton's and, and, and uh, became a partner. And that's how I became a partner because, frankly, I would never have had, the, I think, the courage to negotiate hard on my own behalf and say, look, I have a client following mm-hmm. if that really um, difficult revelation hadn't been <laughs> forcefully shown to me by the, by, the, by the gods. It was absolutely incredible. So yes, it was a very dark time, but it, my goodness, it was incredibly useful in my personal growth. And what's amazing is hearing, because unfortunately it, it, I had somebody on this podcast, a very, uh, a guy, a very lovely guy called Douglas Board, who's a leadership coach and used to uh, chair headhunters. And um, he he wrote a book called, uh, the theme of which is essentially, Can You Rise to the Top Without Losing Your Soul? And um, unfortunately, on on the basis of quite a lot of the visible evidence, the answer is no. (laughs) But but it's very cheering to hear about somebody's ascent in which you couldn't have been more ethical, really, at every point, you know, saying... uh, you know, no, you know, you, you mustn't follow me, you mustn't do this, and that yet they follow you anyway. It's a very, very cheering tale. And do, do you enjoy your portfolio life more than, I mean, I, I assume the hours are pretty arduous, but perhaps not quite as arduous as, as being partner. Well, um, when I was a, when I was a part, partner and I, and I was on boards, I basically had a day job, whereas now I don't have a day job. Mm. So, it's it's not it's not not as bad as it was in terms of ours, but I'm doing things that I really enjoy. I mean, I I, I love the arts, and so being on the globe is just a globe board is wonderful. Mm. I love education. I'm such a champion of education. So being attached to Coventry University as chancellor is just the biggest joy, and and particularly because it's it's the sort of university that um, allows access to such a wide range of people. Um, because you know they they have we have the degree apprenticeships we have and mm. it is just a wonderful university and I I absolutely love being part of it and, and officiating at the graduations is just the most incredible buzz because particularly when I'm in the um, in the cathedral the new cathedral looks out as you know onto the old cathedral ruins and so the symbolism of looking at the difficult past you know. Um, so this, the, the new cathedral having been born out of the bombing and then looking at the, the young people who are the future and it's just the best thing it's so wonderful so I just think I'm really really lucky that the co-op group which is such a highly principled mm. um, born out of an ethic that I really espouse um, and I, I'm chair of the advisory board of Ultra Education, not chair of Ultra Education. Oh, right, right. And, and the founder is an amazing young man. Um, and he takes entrepreneurial skills, teaching into schools, teaching children of all ages. And 
really giving a chance to children who are not necessarily academic to realise mm. the potential, and that's wonderful. And then the Radcliffe Trust support arts and and heritage. Um, so I just think I'm just incredibly lucky, really, really lucky. Well, that sounds to me like a, a Case Lee Hayford assessment of the situation and uh, rather than perhaps <laughs> an external one that would probably involve more uh, more emphasis on the graft than the luck. But it has been an absolute delight to talk to you, Margaret. Thank you so much. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Thank you. It's just a real honour to be able to talk with you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this conversation, do subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify, or any of the main podcast directories, and do share, rate it, and leave a review. For tips, wisdom, and thoughts about The Art of Work, follow at The Art of Work on Twitter or at theartofwork.co on Instagram, which is also the name of the website. We'll be taking a break now for Christmas and New Year, but we'll be back the first week of January with best-selling writer Johan Hari on why we can't concentrate and what we can do about it. Do join me then.